I think that every company should at least have some kind of podcast that people can listen to that's 15 to 20 short episodes that take an hour and a half because podcasts are very good at scaling education. A certain number of people like to read, but a certain number of people just like to listen. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Supercasters, the show where we interview world-class podcasters, deconstruct their growth strategies, and find out how they build sustainable, independent businesses that thrive on a strong relationship with their listeners. I'm Aidan Hornsby, founder of Double Up and co-founder of Supercast. And today I'm speaking to David Perel. David's a writer, teacher, investor, and host of the North Star podcast, where he interviews successful people about their habits, ideas, strategies, and the methods that drive them. Past guests have included Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jason Fried, Jennifer Morrison, Ryan Holiday, and Shane Parrish. David's also passionate about education and has taught thousands of students how to become better writers and how to build their audiences online through his course, Rite of Passage. You can find David on Twitter at David Perel. All one word, that's two R's, two L's. So uh, David, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here and such a big fan of what you guys are doing. I find it to be a undertapped, underexplored opportunity in the world, and it's good that you guys are taking it on. I think, you know, there's 101 things we could talk about right now, but probably a good place to start would be a quick introduction to you for people who don't know you. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk about audience building today. I think that's that's what I'd really love to dig into with you. You've um, You've built a huge and very engaged and loyal audience, but maybe just for, for those who are new to you, uh, if you could tell us just a little bit high level about your journey, you know, into writing and sharing ideas online and kind of how that took you to start a podcast. Yeah. So I always thought I was going to be a television anchor and that I was going to work in the news. And now I am, I watch no television and I think that the news is ludicrous and just way too big of a part of society. Um, and so I had a big pivot where in college I was working as an anchor for my college television station and really focused on sports. And then what happened was I saw I started reading people like Ben Thompson at Stratechery as a sophomore, junior in college. And I began to realize that people were underestimating the scale of the internet. And now what has become cliche, but I find it to be this interesting aspect of what a cliche is that uh, many of the best cliches are actually incredibly loaded with wisdom, but because they are cliches, we don't hear those truths anymore. And the one that I heard back then, which still continues to be true and underestimated, is that people underestimate the extent to which there can be niches on the internet. And I also believe that ambitious people are underserved. So I'll take each of those in turn. So I started writing and that was because I had seen people like Tim Urban and like I mentioned, Ben Thompson and a handful of people who were writing, then used their writing to make opportunities happen. And so I got into writing and uh, some amazing serendipity began to happen in my life. I had really interesting people reach out to me. I ended up making a ton of friends who I thought were 
really intelligent and curious and interesting. And I saw that the traditional model of networking was go out to the world, try to find people, and just go from conference to party to late night bar hour. And what I found was that it was better to actually just skip all the conferences altogether, write online, share ideas, and all of a sudden you'd become a lighthouse for like-minded people where other people would come to you. And then through writing, I realized that I hosted, you know, I hosted a meetup in Chicago in February of 2019. And there I had hosted a couple meetups before, and I noticed that the people um, at different meetups were less interesting than the ones at my previous ones. And I began to question, like, am I just trying to write for too broad of an audience? And I settled on, yes, that was the answer. And so I stopped focusing on page views and started just saying, what is it that I just have five people who I publish for, and um, I just say, what do these five people want? They're all hyper-intelligent. They're individuals because it's easier to write for um, a single person. And then they're all just really ambitious, no BS people. And now what I try to do is write for the very smartest people I possibly can and just try to raise my own standards and by virtue of that process, try to attract people. And going back to that, people underestimate the niches on the internet. I found that just the things that I'm interested in, uh, it turns out there's a very big market for them, even if in my neighborhood or within a mile as the crow flies of me, there might be just a handful of people who are interested in the same things as I am. When I go online, it feels like there's just a torrential tsunami wave of people who who want to explore the same ideas as me. Yeah, totally. And I, I think um, that idea really resonates because I, I think it was Tim Urban was talking about this and, and and he shared kind of something similar and like how he approaches creating content, right? And I think he, he was saying, you know, kind of realized that by the numbers, there's a football stadium worth of people just like him in the world. So he just tries to write for them. And, you know, that's a niche, but on the internet, that's a big audience, <laughs> Yeah. But then even with Tim Urban, there's something really interesting that let's say that Tim Urban, he writes a blog called Wait But Why. Let's say that Tim Urban is somebody who really likes um, interesting ideas, likes to explore them playfully, but then also is able to explore them playfully, not through the written word only, but also through drawing and by creating characters. So you get this really interesting duality where there is a football field of people who have the same intellectual interests as Tim Urban, but only one person who can communicate those intellectual interests in the way that Tim Urban does. And when you have that, you have a sweet spot. So I think, you know, going from writing to podcasting, like, was that a natural leap for you um, once you'd kind of built an audience? Yeah, so I started the podcast in November 2016, and I remember the date because I did it on a Friday before homecoming. So I skipped work, and I went back to my first college homecoming, and I interviewed a guy named David Levine, and I started it back when I was still working a full-time job, right around the time that I started writing. But I started the podcast, and I don't know how to communicate this with the gravity that it deserves. I started the podcast because I realized that I knew nothing. Like, I had had two internships in New York, and I remember looking myself in the mirror and saying, I don't know anything about the world, and I am so wildly incompetent and unprepared to take this world on that if I don't start accelerating my rate of learning – 
I'm going to be screwed. Like, I didn't start the podcast out of this big, audacious vision to start some big radio show or anything like that. I started the podcast as a safety mechanism to not end up in a bad place in my life because I just didn't know things because I had messed around for four years of college and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I need to change that. And I started a podcast and this was in the early, earlier days of podcasting. It's actually still pretty early, but back when many people who would do a podcast interview hadn't been interviewed on podcasts yet. Now that's not really the case. And so I would interview people and it was an amazing way for me to learn not only the conversations, but to just spend one-on-one time with somebody and to see what are these people like in terms of what are their quirks? What are their differences? What makes them stand out? And a large percentage of people I ended up going out to dinner with, becoming friends with, and they became people who continue to serve as mentors and as friends now, many years after I've interviewed them. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And, and something you've said to me, um, you know, when we've spoken before about it, it was kind of the podcast is a great excuse to have a vessel for interesting conversations for you. Exactly. And like, that's such a, that's such a great way to look at it. And I think, you know, it, in terms of how a text is different to audio, it's something I want to come back to, but I think, um, one thing I, I wanted to kind of talk to you about and something that I know, um, you know, a lot of people this has resonated with, but you've said, you know, your audience is worth more than your college degree or even just your Twitter following. Um, that's a statement that a lot of people, I think, want to want to learn more about and unpack. So maybe if you could just explain, you know, why is that and how do you how do you kind of value those two things? Yeah, so let's look at it quantitatively, and then let's look at qualitatively. So I have built my business. We'll probably do roughly maybe a little bit less than a million dollars in revenue this year, and I've never spent a cent of paid marketing, not one cent. And so you could say that spending a cent on paid marketing is producing a podcast. You could say that it's paying the $100 a year that I pay to host my site, but that's not really paid marketing. Paid marketing is Google and Facebook ads and stuff like that. I don't do any advertising. And so what I've been able to do is get more in profit this year than the cost of a college degree. And there you could just say, hey, it is more valuable. So I think quantitatively that's undisputable. But my audience is the single most valuable thing in my life. Like even if I bought a house, I'd rather have the audience than that house. And what people don't realize about, say, a group of podcast listeners. They don't realize, oh, okay, you get 10,000 downloads, 15,000 downloads. No, you have trust, built-in trust with 15,000 people. Like we always talk about Dunbar's number, 150 people that you can keep trust with. The internet obliterated Dunbar's number. Like on the internet, you can have trust with thousands or millions of people at a time. Now, The problem is when you focus too much for, depending on what you're trying to do, when you focus too much on trying to get more and more people, like there are, what I've always wanted is trust with thousands of people who share the exact same ideas that I do so that in my area of interest, I can reach sort of whoever I want, but still be somebody who's not famous by any conventional means that would be awful. And... I would just remind people that your download numbers are not at all the quality and the size of your audience. I mean, I have actually, by all means, a fairly small audience, and yet it's been absolutely life-changing, and 
I can basically access anyone that I would want to access with a single email or a single introduction. Yeah. And I think, you know, something a lot of creators I found, I I feel like people undervalue or don't quite appreciate the value of the uh, audience they have and the relationship with that. And I, you know, that relationship across different channels is a different topic, but I think, and I'm kind of curious about the growth of that audience. Like, did you see a linear growth from kind of zero to where you're at today? You have a relationship with your audience. It's like friendships and you need to treat them well and you need to respect their attention. And this gets actually a good segue into Twitter. You need to treat your audience's attention as if every second matters. And I know that that sounds absolutely crazy, but I really believe that. Like if you take the axiom that there is now a near unlimited amount of competition for somebody's attention online, then that means that the seconds matter. Like if you waste, you know, three minutes of somebody's attention, then they might go off somewhere else. Now, that isn't to say that you dumb things down. Like I were that that's actually where a lot of television has gone. A lot of television has gone in saying anyone can click off at any time. And when people click on, we need to build a product that we never go so deep that when somebody clicks onto our show, they can't just catch up and get context right away. Fundamentally, I believe almost the inverse of that, like let's go as deep as possible. Let's go deep into the specifics and let's prioritize people's attention by now to get onto Twitter. Like I very much say, how can I make sure that every single tweet is in the top 95th percentile of what is on that person's feed? And I want people to get to a place where they see my name in the Twitter feed and they actually almost get to a point where they like the tweet before they read it. Like that then gets people to a place where, okay, this person is consistently good. Now, beyond that, what would I focus on if I were starting a Twitter account? Like if I, if I was coaching somebody, I would say, follow these axioms, make sure that every single tweet is of excellent and superior quality that helps the other person. So that's the first thing. Then I would remember that building an audience and publishing ideas is much more like a dance and less like a speech. What you're doing in a dance, say a tango, there's one person leading the tango, but if the other person is moving a little slow, moving a little fast, your your, your feet are kind of getting mixed up, it is your job as the leader to move at a speed and a cadence and a rhythm that helps the other person move with you. And so you should be listening to your audience. What are people responding to? What aren't they responding to? And you are still the leader. So you aren't just submitting to the wills of the masses. That's not the point at all. But what you want to do is pay attention to who do you want to reach and what are they resonating with. And then, um, this is actually slightly unfortunate, but it is the way that the internet is structured and designed. The internet rewards people who are prolific. And why is that? That's because every single feed from Hacker News to Reddit to Facebook to Twitter to Instagram is sorted chronologically, which means that if you do not publish, you end up basically being invisible. And it's something that I'd like to change about the internet, but it also is something that's just true. The internet doesn't reward the most meaningful ideas. It rewards the most recent ones. And so provided that that is true, what you want to be doing is publishing all the time. So what I would do if I was just starting out on Twitter is I would publish eight to 10 tweets a day. I would go, 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 make sure every single one of them is really good, ship them off and do that until you get discovered. Right. And I think that that balance between, um, 
as you said, like being prolific, being consistent, but being high quality is something that um, I've thought about a lot. And I was I wanted to dig in with you because I think some people have a struggle there. Um, you know, how can I be putting eight things out every day, but only be putting my best stuff out? And particularly, uh, you know, if you're thinking about different channels, if someone's doing a podcast, a newsletter, Twitter, um, how do you think about kind of editing yourself or kind of distilling ideas down for uh, for an audience in that way? Yeah, I well, of course that's hard. So let's talk about Twitter, then let's talk about podcasting. So with Twitter, um, one of the things I do is I write a lot of tweets that I don't send. So that ends up at a place where like there's this own internal filtering mechanism. Second of all, this is one of the things I focus a lot on in Write a Passage is Write a Passage has a thesis that basically goes something like this. Everybody who would take Write a Passage, everyone who's listening to this, has interesting ideas. Now, the issue is you don't know which ones of your ideas are interesting. It is only through conversation and dialogue that you can actually make sense of which ones of your ideas are interesting. So one of the things I'll do a lot is I will have a conversation and I will pay attention to what people are resonating with. And then I will say something. If they resonated with it, I will distill it and turn it into a tweet. And what's also great about conversation conversation is you realize things like conversations are like an algorithm for uh, conscious randomness in that the brain when you're alone you're sort of always in these repetitive loops of ideas but conversations sort of like unlock and tear down the mazes of our own internal psychology and you end up saying things that surprise you so i was talking to our friend jeremy a couple weeks ago and i said yeah you know the thing about clocks and mirrors is that they're like these old technologies but they're so old that nobody Nobody really questions them, but they still impact us every single day. And clocks created a culture of anxiety while mirrors created a culture of narcissism. And he was like, I love that. That's really interesting. And just from that, I said, okay, I'm going to tweak that. And so what I'm doing is I think of a lot of the mind like a river where you a river that is murky doesn't have flow. This is why people put fountains in rivers, not only so that they're beautiful, like they're very beautiful solution to a very annoying problem of the water is still and murky and we can't see to the bottom and it's ugly. So mm. what we do is we put in fountains so that the river flows. And once the river begins to flow, sort of like a creek, you can actually see to the bottom. So the more that you have ideas coming in and going out, the easier you can see your ideas. And I'm always trying to get this flow, new ideas in, new ideas out. And through that process, a certain number of ideas end up being somewhat interesting. And then the final thing I would say on this is I do not try to only publish things that I know are going to be exceptional. I actually have no sense of what's going to hit and what isn't going to hit. And provided that you don't get into anything that's like super charged of an idea, what's great mm -hmm. is that the internet forgets your flops and remembers the things that go really well. And so I've published a lot of stuff that's been trash. And what's great is nobody knows about it. And that's something that a lot of people don't really appreciate or haven't learned. I think there's there's there tends to be a nature of I have to put out something perfect. Do you think of those as kind of one continuum of ideas, I guess? Or do you approach kind of what you're doing with the podcast very differently from kind of ideas you might be testing on Twitter, which make it into essays? And yeah, I'm just kind of interested in that. So I would say that podcasts are like the head of the snake in terms of creating randomness and sort of slithering and slathering through my life. It It, it is sort of ending up in this chaotic place that I can never really anticipate where a conversation is going to go. And 
I often find that podcasts open my mind up to new ideas, but then they also serve as a way for, like, I think conversation is really good in the learning process at the beginning and at the end. I think that conversation is really good to expose you to ideas that you would have never found otherwise. And it's good at the end to stress test ideas that you think that you know pretty well. So then you can ask questions and bounce ideas off of people and fill in the holes. And so I focus on the podcasts on either side of those things. Like very tactically, I'll do podcasts on, hey, what is this person into? And 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 if we're in the same area, my podcast will be centered around these are the questions that I have. Whereas there's other podcasts, like I just interviewed a Hollywood actress named Jennifer Morrison, and I'm like, I know nothing about Hollywood. Let's have this conversation. Let me ask you all the questions I've always wanted to ask an actress. And then like we ended up hanging out in LA and doing a great walk where I got to ask her even more questions about that. So then she becomes a friend. So there's sort of two different ways of thinking about the podcast there. But then all of us as people are very multidimensional. And What's frustrating is that each medium has – well, it's good and bad. I mean e each medium really has a bias. Like Twitter's a place where you're going to come out with things that are very sharp and very brash. And like if you f know me only from Twitter, you're like, God, he's got such strong – opinions about everything but then if you know me only from the podcast it's like actually like much more intellectually curious and humble and more long form trying to explore the nuance of ideas essays then sort of take that to another level but essays don't have a lot of the same sort of pop and pizzazz and rhythm and flavor and sort of the movement and the vibe that i like to have and then that comes off really well on video so like i feel like every medium sort of is like a different hue and a different shade of david and that's why I like being very multimodal in my in my output. Supercast's Paid to Podcast competition is awarding over $100,000 in cash and prizes to the podcaster who can build the biggest paid listener membership. The grand prize also includes an all-expenses-paid trip to San Diego to have lunch with Pat Flynn. You get lots of free perks just for entering. And don't worry if you don't know how to get started. We're also sharing a ton of guidance through our seven-chapter podcast membership guide. To register, just head to supercast.com and click on the competition banner at the top of the page. You've touched on a number of things, I think, for a lot of creators, whatever medium they're working in, wherever they're at, um, there's good takeaways. One one thing you had kind of published, which, which really I, I've come back to a few times, and um, it's it was a post about product launches online. Um, and I think it's like a must read for anyone who's creating or producing anything but basically there were i think you had nine or ten principles in there and like one of the first ones is maybe is like counterintuitive to some people but it's just give tons of free stuff away um so wh what do you mean by that yeah so i would say that one of the things that you want to do is get to a place where you have a lot of embedded trust with people and you'll like you can sell products based off not the first order questions but the second order questions so what you want to do is you want to publish 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 and begin to understand it, it, it's it's sort of like 
you're it's like a double entendre of teaching people where you're teaching people and they're teaching you back so what you're doing is you're explaining hey this is what i'm going through and you're like a reporter from the field you know people always think oh in order to start publishing something i need to be an expert i need to have my master's degree i need to have my phd i might need to have a medical license i might have need to gone to graduate school boom 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 all these things 20 years of experience it turns out that what's great about writing online is you can just learn in public and you don't need to be someone who has all these crazy credentials to provide people with a ton of value. In, in fact, it is often the people who are a couple steps ahead of you that you can learn the most from. Like in my online education business, Jeff Bezos, I mean, I re revere the guy. He's built an unbelievable company, but I don't think that I can learn much from Jeff Bezos about how to build an online education business, at least compared to the CEO of Alt-MBA, who is actually on the frontier with me right now and where I want to be in a couple years. And so what I find when it comes to giving free stuff away is what you're doing is you are reporting what you're learning and you are teaching other people who are right behind you sort of coming up. Then as you continue to make sure that everything that you publish is relevant and helpful, you are beginning to build trust and credibility with people. But then this is what people don't see. See, this is like the thing that when people are like, oh, online writing, it's just a it's just a fad or eh, it's not that great. The thing that people don't see is all the DMs, all the emails, all the feedback that you get from people. And you, you actually begin to understand how people actually see a problem, how it turns in their head, how your ideas begin to impact other people. And then once you begin to see the second and the third order questions, then you really begin to understand what are people thinking about? So you give away products for free to build trust with people, to build an audience of people who, when you do launch something, you can go to them right away, but then also so that you yourself can learn about the field that you're studying and so that you can get real-time feedback from people as you begin to think about, hey, what is this product going to look like? Yeah, and I think like we were just talking about, right, that, that kind of feedback loop with the audience, is, that's, a, that's a great way to kickstart that, you know, and, and I think you're right, people are quite forgiving of learning in public, you know, with the audience is something that creates a connection as well in some ways. Large audiences are sexy niche audiences are profitable. And I think that's something, again, maybe uh, underappreciated by a lot of creators. So if you could speak to that. Yeah. So a lot of what I think about is what I call a personal monopoly. And I think of real estate, where basically there is a near infinite number of different intersections of ideas that you can focus on in your writing, but some are more profitable than others. So let's go back to 1920. If you bought real estate on 74th and Lexington on the east side, that real estate would have gone up in value much more than a place all the way out in eastern Russia or in the middle of Montana, because certain aspects of intellectual real estate are worth more than others. So when you write online, you want to follow and remember this quote from Jerry Garcia, where he says, you want to be the only person who does what you do. And with that, you want to be known on the internet for something that is uniquely yours, a unique intersection of interests, skills, areas of expertise, things that you know about. And when you then begin to build that niche audience, 
you, of course, get to decide what that niche is. Hopefully, it's something that you are very interested in. But the challenge in building a niche, and this is something I've spent hours thinking about and something that I'm still trying to really figure out, is like, how do you build a niche that feels limitless to you but looks specific to others? The problem with niches and when people freak out about this idea is when it is something that just feels limiting to them, right? Like if you were a expert on on deli sandwiches in Victoria, Canada, it probably would feel very limiting to you. And that just has to do with the way that the niche is structured. But niches are profitable because you inherently have differentiation and pricing power. And that then is what is turns into being good for a business that there's not a lot of other people who can compete with somebody who is an expert on something that they're extremely interested in, in a way that nobody else will be in something that feels like play to them, but looks like work to others. And with that, if you layer in some personality with that, you don't have a lot of competition which is what makes the creator business model pretty good for the individual. Yeah, and I think like um, just from our experience working with with podcasters, it's kind of a medium that if you stick at it long enough and you find a niche, it almost self-selects those people who are, you know, so passionate about that topic, right? That it you, you can't help but listen to them. A couple of other ones from this list. Um, one, I think, again, kind of comes back to this idea that um, – you know, when and how should you start creating? I think you said just start creating now. And I think that's that's like a really powerful one. I think a lot of people sit on the sidelines for a long time thinking, well, I want to get this right before I bake it. Um, but you'd said, yeah, start before you're ready. And I think there's, there's maybe some interesting points around that and, you know, just your experience with that as well. Yeah, so let's just keep, let's plant a flag as the end goal here of building a profitable business. Cause I think that then that can frame this, this answer. So the thing that you're doing and what I love about creating is that you can actually test and develop a business model without having to spend the resources of building a product and trying to go to market, you can do it simply through writing. And what I like about writing is that it is actually impossible to write consistently about something that you aren't incredibly passionate about and something that doesn't make you come alive. Like if you are bored writing something, the audience will be bored with it too. And if you are bored writing about something, that isn't something that later you should devote years to with building a company around it. So what I would say is, provided that you want to start a company, I would say, hold off on actually starting the company and just start writing and creating around it now. And people wait their whole lives start waiting for the sound of a starting gun that never goes off. They're listening, 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 and they end up at the end of their lives saying, wait, I was waiting for my turn, but no one ever told me that my turn was there. And it's as if the door has always been open for us, but we've looked at the doorman outside and we've been asking the doorman's permission for us to actually go in when the doorman was just standing there and he wouldn't have blocked you from actually entering the door the entire time. Like just walk through the door. But with that, um, there's a very interesting paradox that people feel when they do start publishing. 
And it's a uniquely human paradox, and it doesn't make logical sense, but everybody feels it, so it makes some kind of post-logical emotional sense, that people feel, time and again, both upset and annoyed that nobody is listening to what they're saying when they publish things, but at the same time, they're worried that now that they've published something, everyone is looking at them, and now the center, they're the center of attention. Both of those things can't be true, but people feel both of those things. And it is that emotional challenge that I think makes writing online and creating anything so hard. You know, the barriers, people always say that the barriers to starting something have gone on down so much. I'm just throw out some cliches here. Oh, you have Shopify. You can build your own business there. You have Supercast. You can launch your own podcast there. You have Facebook. You can run your own ads there. What are you waiting for? It's never been easier to start building a company. We hear this all the time. And those words, as true as they are, have now become hollow. But what people don't actually understand about this is that now the emotional pressure, because we're all under the gaze of social media 24-7, the social pressure and the social anxiety of starting something has in some way never been greater. It's terrifying to go out. People are going to see you. They can Google you. Everyone's going to be looking. Uh-oh, what's going to happen? How are my friends going to think about me? Like We are now almost falling under this weight of all the people that we've ever met, all the people that we've ever known who were like perpetually chained to on social media. And that makes it hard for people to start writing. So with that, when it comes to writing itself and podcasting, even one of the things you can just do is start writing anonymously or pseudonymously. I have a friend named Nick Majuli. He runs a blog called Of Dollars and Data. And on New Year's Day 2017, he made a pact to himself. He said, I am going to write every single week Every Tuesday, I'm going to publish a post no matter what. As I speak, he's at about 185 weeks in a row. And at the time, he was working for a litigation consulting firm in Boston, and he was frustrated with, frustrated with his job, and he wanted to move from litigation consulting sort of around law into finance. So he said, you know what? I know a lot about R, which is a statistical program programming language, and I'm going to combine my knowledge of R with my interest in finance. And for his first 16 weeks, nobody really read his stuff. And then he wrote a post, his 16th post called Just Keep Buying. And at the time, he was anonymous, just writing at of dollars and data. And that post went viral. And then he ended up going to a conference in New York City. And people knew of dollars and data, didn't really know who he was. But because people said, because people he admired, like Michael Batnick, his all-time favorite writer, said, hey, I really like your stuff. He then got the confidence to start writing under his real name. And I think that this gets to a fundamental idea that you don't need to start just exposing yourself right at the beginning. You can write anonymously or pseudonymously and begin to write with training wheels and fall over and sort of catch yourself back up, but do it consistently. And then you'll have a choice. Do I want to write under my real name later or do I not? And as long as you get started, provided that you write pseudonymously, you don't have to deal with a lot of the social pressure that I think is very legitimate that a lot of people face. Mm. And actually, you just touched on kind of the last point here, that the idea that audience building is a game of compounding. What's your experience with that as well? Because I think that comes back to kind of your own experience of growing an audience that's very high quality in a relatively short period of time. 
Yeah, so there's a couple things that I found. And a couple months ago, you and I actually did a study of my Twitter account and how that was growing. And what we found was, and this gets back to one of the questions that you asked earlier about Twitter growth and what that's looked like that I didn't quite answer up to standards. So let me just take a step back here and talk about my personal experience here. Twitter has changed a lot. So Twitter, the like button on Twitter that is now a heart used to be called the favorite and it was a star. And Twitter used to be an all chronological feed. And then it used to be 140 characters. So you have three ways. Oh, and, and the UX wasn't pretty at all. So you have four ways. You have the favorite, you have the chronological feed, then you have the 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 star, and then you have the the 140 characters. All those things have changed. So now Twitter turned the favorite from favorite to a like, and a like is a like a favorite is very high bar. A like is a much lower bar for engagement. Then Twitter became 280, which meant that you could pack a lot more information in a tweet. But then the most important one is that Twitter became algorithmic. So what used to happen is you would only see a tweet if you followed somebody or somebody you followed retweeted that tweet. And so your best tweets would get, let's just say, ballpark it, four to six times more reach as your average tweets. Then once Twitter went to an algorithmic feed, then it became Twitter could just insert your tweet in anybody's feed and the inherent limits on how far your tweet could spread sort of disappeared. So now your best tweets might get 100 or 500 more impressions than your average one. So Twitter went from being more of a bell curve to a power law. So with that, when that came, audience growth on Twitter became much easier, but also the platform became a little bit hackable. And you saw that with the whole platitude culture on Twitter. But for me in particular, I probably took two years to get to a thousand followers, probably took another year to get to two or three, took another year, and this was probably early early 2019 at around 10,000. Then by December 2019, I had around 35. And we're recording now mid 2020, and I have 90,000. So that really exploded. Now, I wouldn't say that there's any kind of guarantee that you get that growth for a couple reasons. First is I have spent a lot of time studying Twitter. I have a course on how to use Twitter. And so I actually got better at using the platform over time. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that the nature of Twitter's changes have advantaged my style. And I there's an element of luck there. But I think you do see, like I could have never, ever gotten that 60,000 that I've basically gotten in the last six months by just in the early days of Twitter. And so, yes, there is a level of compounding. And I think that that's what's so frustrating about using Twitter in the early days. You just have this like voice and you have these ideas and you want to be heard and you feel like you're at Coachella 
but you can't actually talk or dance. It's as if you're just like looking at everyone having fun and you can hear the music, but you can't actually get involved with it yourself. And that's really frustrating for people. Yeah, that's super interesting just in terms of how the platform has evolved there. I'd never really, uh, those those things kind of happen slowly, right? Unless you're kind of really paying attention. I, and I think, you know, that's just talking about Twitter. I guess um, in terms of podcasting audiences, do you find um, do you find that you've mainly driven people? Do they go straight from your newsletter to the podcast, from Twitter to the podcast, or do they discover the podcast in other ways? Yeah. So I don't mean to deflect your question, but it's the honest truth. Podcasting is such a black box. I just don't know. And you know, it's really interesting. So I got sort of burnt out on the podcast in part because I couldn't really see how it was actually engaging with people and i've struggled to grow a podcast that's Mm. that's been tricky for me and so what i've done is i've really focused on the email and now the podcast is beginning to grow again but i'm now growing my email list at around a thousand to fifteen hundred people a week and so i'm trying to drive as many of those people over to the podcast as i can and i think that it's going okay. But I think that they're actually, we're very nascent in terms of understanding how podcasts spread and understanding how they actually convert, how many people listen to them. And podcasts at the same time, though, at least in my business, I think of them as further down funnel. I think Mm -hmm. podcasts are an incredible opportunity for trust. And I think that every company should at least have some kind of podcast that people can listen to. That's 15 to 20 short episodes that take an hour and a half because podcasts are very good at scaling education. A certain number of people like to read, but a certain number of people just like to listen. And if you could say, what if there was like a podcast, like the Shopify podcast that was 15 to 20 very short episodes about Shopify, why it exists, how it helps merchants, why they're more supply side focused than demand side focused. And that would be really interesting. And I find that podcasts have a lot of di- different reasons for being. Now, there's a different kind of podcast that isn't about sort of scaling education. That's more about, hey, we're going to have a relationship. We're going to come together every single week. And what I found there is it's about consistency. That seems to be the thing that works. And talking to some friends who have way bigger lists than I do, who have started a podcast, they too have been surprised by how hard it is to convert email subscribers into podcast listeners. And maybe it's because it's a different medium. Like maybe it's easier to convert different your email subscribers into writing just because it's from words to words instead of words to audio. But um, this is a big opportunity for intellectual expansion for adding models and strategies here that I actually think Supercast could be a big help with. Actually kind of leads me to the last question I had on on kind of audiences and it's maybe more of a thought than a question but just um, I think it's kind of a, a funnel of attention right and if you have social media at the top someone's reading a tweet somewhere in the middle someone's spending some time on your website maybe they're watching some videos um, somewhere down the bottom they're spending hours listening to you talk to people and they're right. developing a very personal relationship with you and I think that's something that um, people who I've worked with, who've been podcasting a long time, definitely kind of inherently understand that the relationship you build up with a podcast audience over time is 
is quite unique. You know, you're very active across a number of channels and you're creating content and sharing. Do you notice any difference with the podcast audience compared to others? One of the things I will tell you is there's something about podcasts that they almost feel the weirdest that people listen Mm. to because they feel the most sort of coincided with my ordinary life. Like when I record a podcast, it's just like, oh, I'm just having a conversation and I just sort of forget about it. Whereas like with an article, I'll pour over articles. I mean, they like take over my life. Like Mm. towards the end of a long form essay, I routinely get sick and I... I can't sleep at night because I'm just thinking so hard about how to coin a phrase. Whereas an episode like this, what's really interesting about podcasts is there's basically like a one-to-one match of how long it takes versus to produce versus how long it takes to consume. So an hour and a half podcast takes roughly an hour and a half to produce. An essay that takes an hour and a half to consume Mm. takes 200 hours, 300 hours to produce. And as a result... I almost forget about the podcast sometimes, but the for certain audiences, the podcasts are the things with reach. Like I know Patrick O'Shaughnessy at at who runs a podcast called Invest Like the Best and runs an asset management firm called O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. They do these outstanding white papers, and one mediocre podcast episode will far exceed the reach of that single white paper. And so podcasts have a lot of the attention and a lot of the trust. And I think that what you're saying with Rogan and a lot of these other podcasters, it's unbelievable just how much influence they have. Not not really just like the reach, but just the depth of the people that they do reach. It's like these serious relationships. Like you're inviting podcasters into your mind, into your, it's like the voice of God inside of your head. Yeah. It's like what it's the most personal connection you're building and it's the hardest to measure so i think that's one of the interesting paradoxes about it and i actually think it's more personal than video because you just forget about it yeah something like that yeah and i mean it feels dead time right so many people just kind of plug in the headphones and then you know you're you've been listening to joe on your commute for five years like what yeah that's informed your thinking um yeah that's awesome david um thank you i think just before we wrap I wanted to ask you, like, yeah, what, what are you working on right now? What, are you, what, is, what is keeping you awake at the moment? What are you excited about and um, what's coming up for you? Yeah, so really just focused on Rite of Passage, which I want to be the business school of the future. So when, you know, it's funny, I was reading about Y Combinator this week. And when they first started, they didn't take it very seriously. It was just a summer program that they did for people who didn't want to do an internship, who were fairly ambitious. And after a couple cohorts, they were like, whoa, this is really a thing. We actually have to start taking this seriously. This thing actually works. And when you first start something, you actually can't take it too seriously. Because if you took everything that you started really seriously, then you would just be driven crazy. And with Rite of Passage, when I started it, it was just a writing course and it was... $600 and, you know, fairly middle brow in terms of pricing. And it was something like, you know, people would come out and, you know, we'd do it. I was kind of embarrassed by it. And it was sort of an experiment like, hey, we'll see if this works. And now Reddit Passage is something that we are taking very seriously. I mean, we have the the price has gone up to two and three thousand dollars. And that's like a real product. And then also online courses, it's not really about building an online course anymore. It's really about building the business school of the future. And fundamentally, I want to build 
hundreds or thousands of sustainable, profitable software businesses. And what I have is this idea of audience first products where similar to what we've been saying today, you build an audience, then you build your relationship with your audience, build trust with them and you build a reach. And then after a certain threshold, say 5,000 email subscribers, you have a podcast that gets 10,000 downloads per episode, who knows, you then launch a software product. And I believe that to return to the beginning of this conversation, there are basically a near infinite number of niches on the internet. People are systematically underestimating that. And so I'm in that Y Combinator transition right now of going from okay, this was a course to now, this is going to become the business school of the future in that we are going to take people who are have a vision for building a software product and there'll be a four to six year program that allow them to do that. And fundamentally, I want to get people up to $200,000 a year in profitability and get hundreds or thousands of people to that number. Because at that number, you have financial freedom where you don't have to deal with a lot of the corporate BS in the world. You can live wherever you want. You can raise a family that has the means to live a happy life. And also with those kinds of small software businesses, you know, they're generally small. You don't have to compromise your ethics at all to build a big business. And that is something that really inspires me. It's something that I think the world needs. It's something that I really want to build. And so I'm now in my growing up phase of going from building a course to building a full-on school. And what does it mean to train the knowledge workers of the future. And I've always thought business school is kind of ridiculous that you don't actually build a business and that's what it should be. That's awesome. And and where, if anyone wants to check out Rite of Passage or take the course, where can they go online to find that? Yeah. So it's riteofpassage.school. And then my website is perel.com, P-E-R-E-L-L.com. And you'll see in the header there, you can click on course, learn about it there. And then I have uh, an essay called my 10-year vision, where you can look into all of the specifics of what I'm going to do, how I'm going to build this, and the step-by-step process I'm going to take to build hundreds or thousands of small software businesses. That's awesome. Um, and if people want to follow you on Twitter, which hopefully after this conversation they will, uh, where can they get you? David underscore Perel on Twitter. And thank you very much, Aiden. Thanks, David. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you sign up at premium.supercast.com, you'll automatically get all of our future bonus episodes too. Feel free to get in touch. We're at Supercast on Twitter. Otherwise, goodbye for now. This episode was produced and edited by our friends at Kelly and Kelly, the award-winning team behind hit shows like This Sounds Serious and This Is That.